Hello, everyone, and good evening. Thank you for joining us for session one of the Pitman Sculpture, a an Apocalypse Keys uh, mini series over on Speculate, where we are joined by two very special guests from a very special uh, sibling podcast to Speculate, I'd say, who will introduce themselves very shortly. But I remind it to you all that you can support Speculate and the cool things that Speculate does uh, over at speculatesf.com and find out more about all of the wonderful games that we have played and all of the wonderful people that we have played those games with. But without further ado, I would like to ask all of these lovely people to please introduce themselves and tell all of these lovely people who you are and what you do. Starting with Mike. Hello, everyone. I am Mike. I publish as Michael R. Underwood. I write action-adventure stuff in science fiction, fantasy, and many of the subgenres therein. I am probably best known for my Re-Reyes Geekomancy series, which asks the question, what if fandom was a magic power? I am one of the three co-hosts of Speculate here, and I also uh, am a game designer as of last year, and uh, a professional GM, and a professional, well, I gave pa I gave papers on superheroes at academic conferences, and I'm going to bring that energy today. They, he pronouns for me. Yes. Next, Yoi. Hello, it is I, Yoi Gawain Lin. They, he pronouns for me. I am a game and fiction writer and am completely made out of meat. Uh, returning to play another character who is also made out of meat, mostly. <laughs> Very reassuring. Thank you for that. Next, Aaron. Hi. Yes, hello. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am the managing director, co-founder, and forever GM at Queen's Court Games. Uh, so on that note, this is one of the very first games that I've gotten to play in, in many, many moons. So, so thank you to Speculate for that. And yeah, I will be playing a creature made of meat also. Mm -hmm. I am also very reassured by that. And last but not least, Aubrey. Hello, I am Aubrey, and I am the technical director over at Queen's Court Games, uh, and I am also the GM and co-producer at Goblets and Gaze, and I will be playing a character made out of fire in Bad Decisions. <laughs> I am more reassured by this fact. So yes, I just want to thank uh, Aaron and Aubrey for joining us. Uh, this, we have gotten a lot of love from Queen's Court Games uh, over the uh, past few streams of several of our uh, works. So I'm very excited for us to be able to work together and for us to tell this really tragic story together. Maybe it won't be tragic, but we'll see how it turns out. I have faith in you all. As for me, I am Brandon O'Brien. I will be the keeper for this session. Uh, for this uh, series, rather. Um, I keep the doors so you don't have to. I am one of the co-hosts of Speculate, alongside Mike and our good friend Gregory Wilson. I am also a writer, poet, and game designer from Trinidad and Tobago, and I'm very excited for us to get into some shenanigans. So let's get into some shenanigans, shall we? Our session begins with two things that happen in the middle of the night while none of you notice. One is that two men meet in a diner, with a briefcase that seems to be vibrating, but no one seems to notice. They sit down, they have a slice of pie each, and they speak to each other very nervously about the fact that they don't know why they have this, or rather why they decided to, to, to get their hands on this. But now that they've 
already bit the bullet. They're hoping that they can be able to at least fetch a nice price for whatever is in this briefcase. One of them then, very idly, gets up, goes to the bathroom, like normal people do, is quite messily incapable of not making a a terrible scene in the bathroom, but at least washes his hands on the way back out, and then comes back out to witness everyone in the diner, except for the man that he came in with, all standing stock still with their mouths agape, as if they are in shock by something that no one can make out, well off into the distance from wherever they are. He walks past a couple who seem to be sharing a slice of cheesecake before this happened, and hears them muttering something, but can't really make out what. And when he gets back to his friend, said friend is like, I don't know what happened. I didn't even open the briefcase. I, 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 I think we should get out of here before it gets worse. And the camera just briefly focuses on the table as they're both standing away from it. As the briefcase seems to be vibrating a great deal more viciously than it was before. Just before one of them grabs it by the handle, takes it off the table, and there is a sharp cut to black. We then fade in on a poorly lit, very small room in a very small building where a single fax machine that is not only off, but not plugged into a phone line and not plugged into a power outlet, turns on and prints one sheet of paper very, very slowly. That sheet of paper falls out of the fax machine and starts drifting slowly to the floor and then a draft of wind that comes from no open window or door slides that sheet of paper all the way up to a desk further up in that room where it rests perfectly in the center of the table and then lights itself on fire. At that precise moment, when it lights itself on fire, you all receive a text message at maybe 2 a.m. in the morning from wherever your private lodgings are. And we will start then with Sierra. Sierra, where are you? I am in... uh like one of the division appointed like essentially it's a little better than a dorm room uh very very small with very few amenities by small do we mean just about a studio apartment or do we mean worse than that it's worse than that it's probably about like maybe three quarters of a studio apartment fine that that sounds par for the course for division sadly you are are you sleeping when you get the text? Yeah, I think I am. It being like two or three in the morning and trying to sleep, even if I maybe am not. It's that room is always 
a little too warm and there's something I can do about it. So it's kind of like that feeling when a room is too warm and you're like, ugh. Yeah. This text message has... You know that feeling you have when you think you've been having a very good, restful night of sleep? And mm-hmm. then something wakes you totally up out of bed? Yeah. That's what this text message does. Wonderful. It just says, get to the post office. Definitely think for a moment about just, I don't know, putting the phone underneath my pillow or something and go, trying to go back to sleep. But I know it's not going to stop. And that I don't want someone banging on my door in an hour and I don't show up. So it's kind of the... Uh, just a long groan as I roll out of bed and try to find clothes that are not filled with holes or dirty hard. Fortunately, because you're in a division dorm building, there is a shuttle waiting for you to take you to the post office. So, once you get dressed, transport is no issue. That's good at we, least. Mm-hmm. We move then to John. Where is John at 2 a.m. in the morning? Uh, John maintains the most unassuming quarters that he can. So in this case, it's a basement apartment, the kind where when it rains, you have to stop something up against the door or else your doormat's going to get wet. The inside is almost completely devoid of furniture. And I I don't want to give the impression that this is a multiple room apartment. It is more like a storage space that has been illegally converted into an apartment building by an unscrupulous landlord. And at the time of the text message, uh, they are sitting in the center of the room um, with a yellow legal pad and a pen. The floor is a, a bare, like, industrial carpet, uh, the kind you'd find in an office building, so it's, like, tightly woven, uncomfortable. And on every single flat surface of the wall is a portrait, either cut from a magazine or taken from somewhere, printed off the internet. So it's just faces everywhere. And when the, the uh, cell phone goes off, uh, the ringtone Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith, in the middle of taking notes on these faces... It's startling, but she does not, like, leap up from the floor or anything. There's a a brush of irritation over their face. Setting down the legal pad, and then with that weight of exhaustion that comes when anyone gets a call from their boss after work hours, reaches to open the, the phone and scroll to the text message. It says, get to the post office. Somewhere out in the universe, there's a Foley artist who wishes they could record the sigh that lumbers up from the depths of irritation that pour out of this person's mouth. But it's division. It's for the better that Jane does not have anything else to pay attention to. So they rise up from sitting cross-legged on the ground, already dressed for business, uh, very long black jeans, wearing a, like a skater hoodie, so thin fabric, but enough to cover all the limbs. Walks towards the door, pausing to grab a pair of gloves. Not nitrile or, or uh, what's the other plasticky word I'm thinking of? Latex. Oh, nailed it. But something thinner, made of fabric. Walking out on the street, looking very much like a very too old emo boy, 
but that's a problem for future John. It is very late, but you notice that a taxi is coming towards you from up ahead. Do you take the taxi? Division works in mysterious ways, and I learned very early on in my career that it was best to not try to second-guess them, because then you just end up being chased around New York City by a taxi, and then your boss writes a really angry memo about how you were late because of that. Paranoia was one of the things that John had to kind of push out of their system. So taxis there, don't believe in coincidences. Without exchanging any words, I uh, will slide into the back of the taxi and then just assume. Mm-hmm. You get into the taxi and you notice that everywhere that an advertisement or some otherwise innocuous piece of text would be in this taxi has now been replaced um, there was once a card that had like the number for the taxi service that this taxi works for, but instead it just has a string of random numbers, even where words would be are just random numbers. There was supposed to be a small slip of paper over the screen that separates the back seat from the front seats that would tell you what your fare would be. But instead it says, be quiet, psychic driving. And there is a phone book, but all of the numbers in the phone book are like weird. Like they're not, they don't have any names and they don't follow the order of a traditional area, local area phone number. You get the vague idea that this may be Soviet number code or something like that. And that... The driver says nothing, there is no music, you just take this taxi to its destination. Hamaliel, where are you at two in the morning? I am on the roof of my apartment building. I am looking at the stars from whence I was made. It is good. Are you looking for something in particular? Peace. But I know I am not going to find that, so I'm just looking for beauty, which I know I can find. Okay. The night is warm, but not unbearably so. The sky is dim, but the city sky is always dim. And you're very good at still finding one or two stars in the midst of that. Almost as if you are not so much looking for them as reminding them where they are in the sky and being reassured by them. And then your cell phone rings. Oh. I examine my cell phone. Ciara taught me all about cell phones. I'm very pleased to deploy this knowledge. You have a brief moment where you're just kind of idly glancing at the phone like it's uh, a piece of art, and then you actually turn it on and read the text message, and it says, get to the post office. This seems like a reasonable thing. I go down to the apartment where I live. I go and I get my coat, because it is important to have your coat when you're going outside. I get my phone, my wallet, and my keys, because that is very important when you're going outside. It is important to note that I have plans. Yes, I do. I have plans to ask Tempo to live with me. For you see, this apartment building 
is apartments that are made for two people or more. So I have been living in an apartment that's actually for two people. My roommate died suddenly, and I need a new roommate. So I was thinking of having Tempo move in with me. This is important, and I want to flag it to you so that you can bring it up later if it becomes, you know, necessary to tie up. But anyway, I remind myself of these plans, and I go to the post office. Okay, how do you get there? By walking, of course. Okay, Hamaliel walks 12 miles. It takes 45 minutes. It's just walking. It somehow looks just like everybody else walks. And the stride is not particularly long or quick, but it doesn't take you very long to get to the uh, post office. I would just like for the audience to know that Ciara and Jane got transport to the post office, whereas Amaliel had to walk. Yes, there is workplace harassment at Division. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I would like to believe it's more that they trust you to get there yourself. They know if they don't send a car for us, something bad is going to happen or we won't show up. Or the act of you attempting yeah, to show off would be tragic. Yeah. Tempo. Where are you at 2 o'clock in the morning? So we cut to a close shot on a gray-purple face with eyes like bright galaxies and two large ha uh, hands with too many joints held out, straining. As I am holding an entire building's fire still with time distortion. So there is no sound of flame. There is no motion of fire. I am holding it, holding it still so that the fire does not grow or move or hurt while the fire department rescues the last people from this four-story building. I love this so much, oh my god. Um, We've met the overachiever of the squad, by the way. Mm-hmm. feel really called out about my intro now. <laughs> two... Do we notice two firefighters come out through the downstairs entrance, each holding, like, a severely smoke-inhalation-afflicted older uh, man or woman each in their arms as they come out. As this is happening, a small calico kitten leaps out one of the windows right next to where Tempo is holding the flames onto Tempo's shoulder just at the moment in time when one of the firefighters gives you the thumbs up to let you know that there are no more uh, individuals in the building. So I turn to the, the cat and say, Hello, small soul. What truths do you know? Dozens of people on the other side of this block where this fire is happening have not stopped cheering for 12 minutes. Just the act of you being present has somehow reassured them this is going to go fine. And the fact that there are no seriously injured individuals in the building only reassures them further. As the two firefighters are putting their last survivors into 
gurneys to be taken into emergency ambulances. Both of them stop, turn to you, and salute. No one has started putting the fire out in the building yet. Everyone is focusing on you in this moment when you get a text message on your phone. You may now cease the fire. Ask yourself when you return home tonight, what would you do if I was not here? Know that the answer is not that you would have burned. And they kind of release the, the control uh, and fly up to the top of the building where they, were, uh, where they will answer the, test, the text. Everybody clapped. A young woman starts crying uncontrollably. Everyone is still utterly in awe of that moment as you fly away to answer the text. The text says, Dear Tempo, you are needed uh, urgently at the post office for another division assignment, uh, signed management. Okay. So, Brandon, I have a start of session move. Should we do that now? Oh, ho, what, what, what move is this? So this is a move called A Flickering Hope. At the start of each session, describe a memory you have of your people. Choose to speak with love, sorrow, or both. Say what you hope for. Spend darkness tokens and roll. Oh, ho. So I'll keep this one short so that we don't extend the, uh, the beginning too much. I remember the day that the expeditionary force took off from our world, Relayum, which is also the name of our people. The Relayum with me looked to me because even though I was on the wrong side of the argument, I am still a leader. And the expectation that they look at me with feels like a chain around my neck. And I worry that I will be the chain for these people that I'm assigned to. And what I hope for is that I can be to these beings of Earth and places like Earth what my people wanted me to be, and I could not. And I don't have any darkness tokens, so I guess I just roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is a seven, which is a full miss. So on a seven, you, uh, your hold on the memory falters. The keeper tells you what price you will have to pay to save your memories from the harbinger's grasp. Oh, God. <laughs> this is particularly interesting. As you are observing this dream... You notice two things that you know can't possibly be true of this dream. One, in this memory, the landscape of your home is utterly decimated. Plants are dying, animals are decaying on the earth behind you. The earth is cracked with drought. It vaguely, in your memory, feels hotter than it's ever been on this planet in ways that you can only parallel to earth temperatures. Second is that a close relative is standing right before you in this memory. And as you look at them, 
the shade of their skin changes. For no real reason, they start to resemble a human more than they ever should. And that's how you realize, wait, that's not, that's, that's not, that's not how this, that's this, something's wrong here. And just off in the distance of this memory, the thing that makes the least sense of all, ultimately, is that you see two men in black suits, two humans in black suits, walking past this rotten earth, past you and the crowd of other people who are present in this memory. And one of them is holding a suitcase, and they're walking along this barren wasteland as if none of this is noteworthy whatsoever. Does that strike you as odd? I think when I think about it and the parts don't make sense, the way that they process it is that since they lost their people, sometimes the time distortion abilities mean that they, that they process linear time out of order. And so the expectation is, oh, this is just a thing I don't remember. Uh, I, I remembered from the future and I shouldn't yet. This fluctuation is a kind of emotional thing that happens with your people a great deal. It is a kind of lack of control over the constancy of time. If it keeps happening, your ability to tell what time you're interacting with at any one moment may become warped. You may have to, in order to not only maintain your grasp on your own abilities, but to reconstitute this memory more solidly, you may have to very briefly not interact with time for a bit. That means not necessarily limiting your ability to engage with your powers, but literally not noting what time is around you for some time. Which is obviously difficult in a place where being punctual, the noteworthiness of a particular event in time, etc. may be particularly complicated. It's a very weird ritual to have to perform among humans, but for the purposes of reconstituting this memory, you may have to. Yeah, it's like a, a time-sense version of don't think of a pink elephant. Mm-hmm. But when, when I kind of, when my attention returns from this memory, I look in the direction of the, the post office and uh, you can see that the, the kind of superhero cape that I have, which unlike my bodysuit, which is silver, uh, the cape is the same kind of bright nebula sparkling color as, the, as my eyes, but it doesn't wave in the wind right. Uh, it waves in the wind backwards in time. And then I f zoom flying off to the post office. Cool. Nice. You all arrive at the post office. Temple, you arrive just about last, like just a couple minutes after everybody else does. And as you arrive, you are the only four people here. I was probably one of the first to arrive. You know, I don't think that the division is that far away from the post office. Yeah. And I kind of found a spot, like uh, an empty counter or whatever, and I've sort of posted up, just sort of like laying on it, uh, waiting for everyone else to show up because I've done this song and dance before. 
as the second person who is uh, has an automobile at their disposal and who who is not waylaid by a burning building. Uh, I suppose I'm the next one in the room. Uh, seeing Ciara, uh, the first thing that happens is I, I walk over with a different notebook and pause a couple feet from you, flipping through the pages until I find the right one and then hold it up next to your face, looking back and forth before nodding. I think you would actually know this having spent mm. time with me that the notebook is full of either drawings or portraits or pictures of people and that I have just compared the face that I see in front of me to the face that is in the notebook that has your name on it. You'll get the, like kind of an acknowledgement nod and kind of like a peace sign or whatever. Just like, I'm here, you're here. The world's in danger again. It's Tuesday. It's also worth noting that um, before entering, Jane would have pulled the hood up all the way and is wearing a white Volto mask that aside from when you found me, that's the bond that Ciara and Jane share. Uh, you have not seen my face since. At any time we are together, there's always the mask involved. As the third person to arrive for a given quantity and definition of person, you hear the tap, 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 tap of someone in cloth shoes first walking and then sprinting after a brief pause and then you hear someone go, Ciara, Jane! And there's a blurry leap as Ciara is crushed in a hug from a five foot tall person who looks at first like mm. a 12 year old child, but is actually a young adult That's <laughs> because fair. they're just very small. Fair. And it's just like the kind of like noise that you make when you hit in the chest real hard and you're just like, I, I see you too. Uh, and you, you'll feel it, Sierra, is the normal, like, have you ever touched somebody who, like, obviously has a fever? Uh, mm -hmm. It's like Sierra's always running about that hot, you know, and, and never seems to be any cooler than that. Sierra, it is 2.45 in the morning, and you are warm. I am so pleased to have hugged you on this day and at this time. Hello, John, and also Jane. And then Hamaliel stands there very proudly and T-poses and waits for you to hold up the notebook to identify um, them. Absolutely. Uh, and I think um, Hamaliel is actually one of the first ones in the notebook, so it doesn't take long <laughs> to find that page. There's like table of contents, mom, <laughs> dad, and then and nods. I would add that uh, for most actions, and I'm sorry that I didn't describe this, uh, John keeps their hands in the pockets of their hoodie and is using their telekinetic powers to manipulate a second set of gloves. So Ooh. you see like two disembodied hands that are holding up the thing, or like holding up the, uh, the, 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 pa the pamphlet of faces while his actual hands are just tucked into the hoodie. After doing the T-pose of identification, Hamalil goes, the hugs would like to come for you as well. May I hug you? Uh, there's one, it's, it's an, it ends up being a, a multi-limbed experience because Jane's hands come up in the absolutely not gloved posture, but the telekinetic glove hands will do their best to effectuate a hug. 
It feels more just like being patted down by two disembodied Mickey Mouse hands. Mm-hmm. Amalil has accepted this as this is how uh, Jane hugs, so that's fine. And then after that, they bounce up to, I guess, a mailbox and hop onto the mailbox and sit on top of it and just kind of swing their legs. Doo, 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 doo. Also, I have a start of session move, so, but now feels like a pretty good time to do it. Oh, ho, what is this uh, move? The move is called My Hands Around Your Heart. Yours is a power that was never meant for you alone to bear. At the start of each session, choose another PC to be your heart and share the burdens of your power with. Say why uh, you hope they will save you from what the darkness demands. And I think I'll choose Amalil as just sort of a, um, say, how they will save me is by um, reminding me of the things that, r- reminding me that not everything is horrible and world-ending. But there's still, like, some light out there, even if this light is from an eldritch being. Amalia will gladly accept this burden. And then there's things that it does later on if, like, those ever come up. Temple, you finally arrive. Uh, so I kind of float down um, from from flying and uh, alight upon the, uh, the sidewalk uh, at the front uh, and nod in turn to each of the three with great deliberate particularity as if this is a ritual. Have we met you before? Is this the fir- or is this the first time we're meeting? So... With my my bond selections, uh, I know Sierra at least in some way. Like we have history, and but that might be the only that might be the only connection. So maybe there was a mission we were on previously, not being on the same team. If that's cool with you, Aubrey. Yeah, that's more than cool with me. Okay. Um, so yeah, like you you already mentioned like asking Tempo to be roommate. So. It seems likely that we y'all would have already have known that I was going to be added to the team. Also, I like to think I asked you to be roommates because I asked Yara and John to be roommates because my roommate died suddenly and Yara refused because my building is very flammable. Uh, John refused because absolutely not hands. So obviously... You're going to be asked to live with me now. <laughs> well, it's not even the fact that your building is very flammable. It's Division probably won't let me. Mm. That's why Ciara has to stay in the dorms. They had to build a specifically mm. fireproof place to keep her. The room is very fireproof. Yeah. They sleep under a fireman's blanket. You don't see a reaction because there's a mask there, but there's a, there's a sudden peak of attention as Tempo enters the room because... We were told you would be showing up, but Jane just assumed it was a terrible joke or a mistake and could not comprehend why that would be the case. We've established that this this crew, the three of us, are are not the A-team, and the idea that they would, in John's mind, waste someone like Tempo on this subdivision of division just doesn't, doesn't process. So when you enter... Uh, the very first thing that happens is the the disembodied hands grab the phone and then Google Tempo's name to find an appropriate picture so that he can hold it up. And then it's just like a beat and... Son of a bitch. Kamalil looks over to John and says, That's not a nice thing to say. 
and waves at Tempo regardless and goes, hi. Sarah sits up slightly, uh, kind of do the thing where you sit like back on your uh, arms, like looking over and just being like, yeah, that's your echo, John. That son of a bitch. Yeah. I didn't think they were serious about it. I didn't either. Is this, do you think this is like, like corporate counseling? Did we, is this like a, this, this isn't like an emergency, this is a meeting. This is like a, a division intervention. Is that a thing? Um, yeah, probably. I mean, what are you whispering before. about? I don't, I don't think it's, it's even a whisper. I think it's actually like yeah. loud enough that everyone in the room can hear, oh. but John has no boundaries. It's more of just like my interventions are stop burning things. And at some point, I'll realize we're having this conversation, especially uh, when Hamaliel calls it to attention, uh, right. and then John will direct one of the gloves to perform a handshake. Tempo's hands are, are both too big and have too many joints, and so the handshake is much more from above, um, but they have learned how to approximate a human handshake. I have a visual of like a, you're reaching down like, to like a pet's paw kind of thing. Cute. I realize Master taking pic photos. (laughs) As you both shake each other's hand, suddenly you all feel the room become unbearably warm. Yara, where wasn't me? Swear this time. It wasn't you. You all hear the. The sound of the footsteps of very expensive shoes walk from behind you in the room and pass through where you all are standing or sitting to get towards the head of the room. And the person standing before you is a six-foot, heavy-set man with flames coming out of every orifice of his head. This man is a man that you all know as Aya. Aya is your handler. Aya doesn't like any of you except Tempo, and also doesn't like being called to work in the middle of the morning, or late at night, or at lunchtime. Yeah, I make rude gestures behind their back. They don't know. Or they do. They don't acknowledge me. You know that they know, and they say nothing about it. When he turns to face you, he's like, So, of all the teams in all the world, I still have to put up with three quarters of this one. Good morning, everyone. Morning. The best part about having two sets of hands is that John can do a slow board jerking off motion with his hands while also doing boo-hoo with his glove hands. Very clever, Jane. So let's be quick. Aya snaps his fingers and a sheet of paper reconstitutes itself through flames in his hand. Um, It has the official watermark of Division. Division does not have a logo. But the logo of the organization that should be on this sheet of paper is 
that of the Vitruvian Man bisected by a faceted diamond in the center, with the letters I-V-I-S carved into that diamond. And the document itself seems to be a pre-briefing of a potential case. Since no one gives you this via text, I guess my job here is to read it to you all. So I can trust that you all have been given this information and will not abscond into the night with some other ulterior motive. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to read what's on this piece of paper the one time, and then I'm going to leave. And if at if any time between now and tomorrow night, I learn that any of you have lit anything on fire or wiped someone's memory, I'm going to be more of this and he gestures to his head and more flames come out of every orifice but i don't want to do that because that is according to you all annoying or some bullshit so i'm gonna trust that y'all can be adults and actually fulfill a case this time so i can just go back to sleep and not have to think about any of this capiche Thank you for telling us your hopes and dreams and then reading a paper to us and then leaving. We'll do a good job. What they said. A good job, they said. Okay. The document reads, Crimson Level Artifact RVX 2307, otherwise known as the sculpture The Veiled Gentleman by August Pittman has emerged on the black market after being presumed missing or damaged for more than two decades. Aya snaps his fingers again, and on the desks behind or beside you, reconstituted through flames, are dossiers that include one glossy photograph of a very ornate pewter sculpture that looks like a very well-done carved... What looks like a sheet of cloth, but you know that this is cut from stone, but it looks like a very convincingly, very convincingly like a piece of cloth thrown over what you can only imagine underneath is a top hat, a very sharp jaw, a very sharp shoulder, and then it just kind of disappears underneath the rest of that. And Aya continues to read. Operatives have monitored its resurgence up to several days ago, where an alleged sale of the item has reduced our leads. Simultaneously, psychics have observed increased activity from rival organization, the Beatographs. He snaps his finger again, and a single sheet of paper appears next to the dossier that is like three or four paragraphs of text about a faction known as the Beatographs that you can read at your leisure. Aya continues to read. This is no coincidence, as the Harbinger-class creature, also identified as the Veiled Gentleman, is a prime worship candidate for their members. Reclaim RVX-2307 and identify its corresponding door of power before they intercept either. If possible, minimize as much ex external exposure to the effects of RVX-2307. If purchased by an unaware third party, you are authorized to resolve their involvement however you see fit. He snaps his fingers and that sheet of paper disappears in a puff of smoke. Does everyone understand 
what I have just told them. Like mud, but yes. Affirmative. Uh-huh. Temple. Ire. I can trust you to uh, make sure that the three of them don't make a mess like the last time. Life hey, is a deal with it. I've found that human life can be quite messy, but you may ask yourself what success looks like and dream that into being through action, and we will do the same. Temple, what does that mean? Uh, Allow me. We've got it, Chief. Uh, I see her cackles a little bit at that. Just glove hands and head and hands. Amalil applaud. This is the mastery of human customs that they wish they had. Sierra and John, you can make sense of what this looks like when you see it. Aya has the gaze of someone similar to the gaze of someone of who has just seen a ten par a ten car pile up on the side of the road. And is, like, awestruck at how grotesque and tragic it looks. That's, that's the look of shock and confusion that is on Aya's face right now. And then Aya turns to Sierra. In the event of any complications, you are second in command. Do not let that go to your head. If Tempo is still around, you report to Tempo. Don't start any fires do my best best they said okay i'm going back i'm going back to sleep later they turn the corner to walk through a side door in this room but they don't actually open it or walk through it they just turn into a puff of smoke and disappear against it the dossier tells you what is any immediate location uh, places of interest any information about the Beatographs that you would like to know um, as far as is available to the organization. And the only thing that they have about the Veiled Gentleman is a photo of the uh, sculpture itself and some historical notes about August Pittman. I'm not going to move first because, you know, yet again, fire and paper don't always mix so well. So I'm going to wait for one of the more less rash people to... Uh take in the information and regurgitate it in a way that makes sense to me. I think Jane is picking up the dossier bits with their hands while also wafting the smoke away with the glove hands, but just reading to themselves and honestly with an air of morbid curiosity as opposed to rapt professional attention. I have taken the remaining documents and Kind of like at a restaurant when you share a menu. I am sharing the rest of the documents with uh, Ciara and Tempo because John seems to be very buried into those documents. So no menu sharing for John. So if anybody wants uh, any additional details that are present on those things, you can let me know and I'll state it. Uh, so he said that the sculpture reappeared. What does this mean precisely? Reappeared. <laughs> a great question. Um, 
We live in a fantasy world. I'm not. Um, just, mm -hmm. uh, did we what are the limits here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As you are looking for proof of whether this the sculpture physically was no longer on this plane of existence, the write-up about uh, the veiled gentleman that accompanies the photo just says that for a period in the mid '90s, it disappeared from a private gallery and hadn't been cited for several decades, even though it was not the site of a robbery. So nobody knows how it uh, left. Everyone assumed that it was a very successful, like, in-the-dark-of-night robbery, but there is no obvious corroboration that there was any forced entry in that space. So it just kind of disappeared for a while. And then someone claimed to have it on the, on, on the black market, and it... Moved around for a bit. I have two questions. One, the sculptor's name again was... August Pittman. August Pittman. Is that a name that is attached to anything of, of particular note? Are they like an especially well-known person for good or bad reasons? Or did they, are they an exemplar of the style or is it just like another sculptor? Pittman... August Pittman it was known from the 70s to the early 90s as a very prolific physical materials artist. Uh, like he doesn't, he, he didn't really consider himself a sculptor until uh, what is typically known as the Gentleman series, even though none of those physical sculptures share any characteristics, but was uh, very good with uh, lots of mixed media, large object pieces throughout the 70s and 80s, was very well known for making what a lot of art critics would note as one art critic literally referred to it as, quote, abstract recreations of very clear realities, by which a lot of those critics mean, even though his work was very postmodern in the uh, creative sense. They were also very legible in a way that was incapable of description. Like, you could look at one of his works, and even though you know that it's very abstract and avant-garde, you know what the theme is in a very clear sense without having, without requiring much explanation, and that was what he was very good and very strong at, and that's what makes the Gentleman series so much more curious, because... The Veiled Gentleman is one of four pieces that Pittman made very late in his career after no longer making any work, being placed into hospice care in the later years of his life and then uh, passing away of natural causes, um, that have no immediate uh, observable thematic connection to each other, to his previous work, or any obvious thematic value to an audience in the way that his earlier work does, and that's what makes it even more valuable to a lot of people, that this is when Pittman was weird. And as a result, um, The Veiled Gentleman was very prized in particular for collectors, even before its disappearance from that one gallery and was on sale on the black market for six figures or more escalating very high in price in that uh, invisible auction on the on the dark web uh, for similar reasons. 
And then the the brief mentioned that it was a an uh, a high value or high likely object of worship. Does it elaborate as to why that is, or is it just the thing in this universe that sometimes people form cults around statues and things happen? I thought it was more. It was the figure of the veiled gentleman that was an object of worship, not the statue itself. Did I misunderstand? Uh, you are correct. Okay. There, there just so happens to be a Harbinger-class creature that is also literally called the Veiled Gentleman and also bears a great deal of physical characteristics that are similar to the sculpture, as far as people have observed, because very few people have observed it and lived, but those are the notes that the Vision keeps in their records. That harbinger is un division is unclear as to its drives and set and general power set, but know that it is capable of a great deal of overwhelming grotesque carnage. I'd like to prevent that from taking place without before anyone else notices for the obvious reason that carnage is bad. So they're acting pre they're active, acting preemptively on the assumption that the two are innately linked. They can't want it solved that bad because they gave the job to us. But that's the piece I was missing. I had somehow missed out that the Veiled Gentleman is a statue of the Harbinger creature. So thank you. That's all. I will me. say, uh, just as an aside, you get the vague impression that they gave it to your team in the event that if something goes poorly to a member of Division in the, in the business of accomplishing the, this task, at least they got rid of you and not someone that mattered. Yeah, if they manage to solve the problem, excellent. If they don't, excellent. What are we, some kind of suicide squad? <laughs> As everyone is like evaluating the dossier, when there's like a, a break, I say, I do not care what Ayer thinks of you. I am pleased to work with each of you. And I would ask you to believe in yourselves. As I believe in you. But will you live with me? <laughs> I think it's a character as well. It's just Sierra just just was like, do not expect that. <laughs> it's like you usually gotta know someone for like more than ten minutes before they you ask them to live with you. But huh? I have known Tempo for more than ten minutes, oh, and true. Tempo distorts time, so Tempo's known me for more than ten minutes as well. Extra. I stand corrected. Apparently, Amaliel, you must know that. If I were to be your roommate, it would draw a great deal of attention to you in a way that may hamper your ability to move freely among the people of this world. Ayer called me stupid once. I'm not really sure what that means. I'm not really sure what you mean either, but I think that's a no. Is that a no? We should speak on this more later once the case is solved. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> Where do you think we should begin our investigation? And this is asked to everyone. Can I inject with a move, uh, Mike, with your consent, since it involves a player thing? Yeah. Uh, my base level move is you can't hide your heart from me, which allows me to read the surface thoughts and the strongest feelings of those around me. Mm -hmm. And I know that I know what Ayer's deal is. I don't know what Tempo's deal is, but I have heard my entire life that that positive, you know, all that kind of motion. And I want to see, as you're interacting with the other two, like what's really going on here so that Jane can set her expectations. Sure. Um, 
is that something where you have to roll or is it just a you always know it is um i can the sense that, uh, surface thoughts and feelings always but if i want a specific question i have to roll um i also don't have any darkness tokens so i apologize in advance if something goes wrong <laughs> on the off chance something goes wrong uh so that's a that's full miss uh the darkness within you takes hold and will break the mind and heart of who you were connecting to the keeper tells you what price you must pay to save them from the worst of your power so I visualize this as not having a full appreciation of like the force of Tempo's being and a bit like when you reach out to touch a fence that you don't know is electrified. And then that reaction sets something, sets off like the backlash, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, I, I almost imagine that as like a snap zoom feeling of like falling into infinity of their eyes. Uh, but then, like, there's also the gravity on on tempo, right? Because of the the impact, unless you do a thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is a moment as you're attempting, like, to grasp this moment, trying to like understand more about tempo. There's a moment when a voice in the back of your head goes. Wouldn't this be a nice pawn? And no one else notices it because you're wearing a mask, but you are briefly no longer in control of your muscle movements when you notice that you are grinning just a little bit. I want to say that this voice is, I, have, I am familiar with it. It doesn't come from like inside the head. It booms from every direction. Like... Ima like, like imagining that you're just this tiny person inside someone's mouth as they speak and it's cavernous and everywhere and there's this paralyzed nothingness that that just stop there's no john tends to engage in a little bit of tomfoolery as a performance of being engaged and in this case everything is just stopped and i think that would include the gloves so the first indication that anyone else has and that has gone wrong is that the gloves have fallen from the the air and landed just smack loud on the floor. It is possible for you to just recover from this moment. But you've heard that voice before and you know that voice is very insistent. And you know that voice is obsessive, the deeply focused, in a way that it is very easy for you to overcome with your will as it stands right now. But only if you Never look at Tempo or say Tempo's name for at least the next hour. Uh, for my clarification, does that include, like, are we saying not to reference them at all? Like, including pronouns and stuff, just so I know the rules to play by? Pronouns are safe. Okay. Um, it, it, it turns out that that doesn't trip the alarm of that, that voice of the darkness in your brain. But... Anything else would be kind of a risk and would probably be inviting some misfortune on both of your parts. And then, does, Tempo, do you recognize that something has happened? Like, that you've been... I, I don't want to use the word probe, but that's the only one I've got right now. Yeah, like, I think... Because the, the failure state of this is, like, getting turned into a pawn, right? Like, if, if Jane isn't able to kind of control themselves in this moment... And so 
I think there's a like there's the uh the equivalent of hairs rising on the back of 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 your neck um but it's more a feeling of being shut in and of possibility constricting slowly but then like there's like maybe some kind of window back into into John and so like John would get the sense that tempo is lonely but hopeful in this moment and that hope is bolstered by seeing Jane making an effort to not be boxing them in. It's a cool little scene. Thank you. As that, as you both recover from that moment, you see someone knock on the glass window of the uh, entrance of the post office. Who is it? It is a limo driver. Someone's pulling out the stops for this. The limo driver very awkwardly opens the door and goes, Apparently I'm supposed to drive all of you out of the state? And with that, we're just going to take a very brief break. When next you will see all these lovely people, they will be on their way to a very awkward scene. But before that, we're, we're going to take a 10-minute break. Uh, a reminder for everyone uh, who is watching this that a break for us is a break for you as well. So please take this moment to take care of all of the things that you need to take care of for your own body. And we will be right back very, very soon with more of the Pitman Sculpture. Sculpture. 